You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Okay, today we are finishing. This is the last sermon in this uh, extended set of sermons we've done through the book of Genesis. Now, uh, let me think about Genesis with you just by way of a reminder of a few things about this book. Genesis is divided into two parts. So the first part is what we might call primeval history. This is the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. And uh, these first 11 chapters, uh, they show God's people how everything came into existence. Like the world, everything, planets, stars, everything came into existence. That's the first 11 chapters. Part two of the book of Genesis is what we would call patriarchal history. Uh, this is chapter 12 through chapter 50. And it's designed to show God's people how they came into existence. Not the whole universe, but how God's people uh, came about. The, the origin story for God's people. So it tracks the story of Abraham. Uh, then it tracks the story of his son Isaac. Then his son Jacob. And then lastly, his son Joseph. That's chapter 12 through 50. The second part of the book of Genesis. And over the last several months, we have been working through part one of Genesis, uh, chapter one through verse 11. Now, let me again just remind you why we chose to spend time as a church family in this part of the scriptures. Um, first, it, it's because Genesis gives us the beginning. This is one of the gifts that Genesis gives. It gives us the beginning. Now, think about how stories work. Uh, the beginning, in a lot of ways, sets up everything that's to come in the story. It is a crucial part of the story because it is setting up the rest of the story. So if you think about the last movie you watched or the last good book you read, if you would have um, started the book right in the middle, that, that story would have been pretty rough. If you would have started the movie in the middle, there's just so much you're going to be losing about that movie because the beginning sets the stage. In the same way, uh, the, the, what Genesis is doing in the wider story of the Bible is it's setting the stage for the Bible. Setting the stage for the story that the Bible is telling you. The, the beginning is helping you interpret and understand and appreciate the rest of the Bible story. Uh, when I think of Genesis, I oftentimes think of it as uh, giving us the sort of theological pillars that the rest of the Bible story is going to be built on. And it's appropriate that Genesis is called Genesis uh, because that word means origin or beginning. And it is a fitting title because it is the beginning of everything, of the Bible, of the Pentateuch. It, it is the beginning. And if we want to understand the rest of the Bible, we have to understand the beginning of the Bible, the book of Genesis. So Genesis gives us the beginning. And secondly, Genesis helps us understand our world. Genesis is full of what we have called front page issues. Uh, it's dealing with the questions that you're dealing with and our culture is dealing with and our world is dealing with. It's dealing with those types of issues. Where did we come from? Why do we exist? What is the purpose of our lives? What does it mean to be a human being? What is marriage? Why does marriage exist? What does it mean to be male and female? I mean, th these are the questions our culture is asking right now. Uh, what is wrong with the world? Uh, why do we all have a sense of like the world is beautiful and it is so broken? 
Why do things like death and abuse and murder and polygamy and just fill in the blank of all the things? Why do all of those things exist in this world? Well, Genesis answers them all. In the beginning of the story, God is laying the foundation for you to understand where all of those things come from. What all of those things are for. Uh, in this way, Genesis gives us a worldview, a way of seeing and understanding and inhabiting the world that we live in. And because it gives us a worldview, Genesis is such an amazing gift to every follower of Jesus who wants to be faithful with their days. So that's why Genesis. Now today we are in our last section, our last passage in Genesis 1 through 11. Now before we zoom into the text that you just heard read, I want to zoom out for a moment and I, I want you to think for a second about how Genesis 9, 10, and 11 are relating together. What's happening in these last three chapters of the first part of Genesis. In chapter 9, Noah and his sons and their wives, those eight people, step off the boat, off the ark. And as soon as they step off the ark and onto dry land, uh, we hear the same blessing from Genesis 1 repronounced over them. It shows back up in Genesis chapter 9. So in Genesis 9, 1, we read this. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then as you keep reading in Genesis chapter 9, it happens. You get to Genesis 9, 19, and we read these words. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. So, so being fruitful and multiplied, they had that down. It, it was happening in Genesis chapter 9. Uh, then we get to Genesis 10, and what Genesis 9 states Genesis 10 shows. It's often called the table of nations. It shows a people, Noah and his family, becoming peoples. All of these different nations that make up the, 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 you know, the nations of the world. So in chapter 10, it names 70 of these nations. And by doing that, it's introducing us to all of these groups of people that we're going to meet in the Old Testament. So that's Genesis 10. It's showing us uh, the peoples uh, now of the, the world. Now, if, if Genesis 10 shows a people becoming peoples and a language, singular, becoming languages, then chapter 11 explains it. That's the purpose of chapter 11. Uh, it gives us the theological reason why our world has peoples and not just a people languages and not just a language. Now, one more note about uh, Genesis 10 and 11. As a general rule, Genesis is laid out chronologically. So, uh, you know, you're expecting for it to sort of flow in a timeline that makes sense. Now, this is one moment in Genesis, and there's a couple of these, but this is one moment uh, where it's not true. It's not laid out chronologically. It's laid out thematically. So when you start in Genesis chapter 11, the, the clock rewinds and it is explaining what you just saw in Genesis chapter 10. So think thematically, not chronologically when you get to chapter 11. Okay, so with that said, uh, let's jump in. There's two pictures I want to show you in this last passage. Two pictures. The first half gives us a picture and the second half of this passage gives us a picture. And here's the first picture that we see in Genesis 11. It's a picture of human pride, of human pride. 
So again, chapter 11 rewinds the clock and says this. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. So you've got a new technological invention that's just happened here. And then they go on. And they uh, had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Now here's the key verse that I want to draw your attention to, verse 4. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves. You might underline that phrase and let us make a name for ourselves. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. What we are seeing in this passage is a picture of human pride. Now, what is pride? Pride is a disposition of the heart that says, it is all about me. Everything's about me. Everyone else is going to be about me. It's a disposition of the heart that says, um, God is not the point. I am the point. And God better step aside along with everyone else uh, or else. Th th that's pride. Uh, pride is that, that heart that says, um, there's going to be a center of the universe and I'm going to be it. And everyone else, everything else is going to revolve around me at the center. And if you don't get in alignment, right? If you don't get in the orbit around me, we are going to have a significant problem. That's the heart of pride. I am the point. I will be at the center. God, you're not going to be at the center. You're going to have to step aside from that place because I'm coming into that place. That's the heart of pride. It is all about me. Or we could say it this way. The, the primary problem on the plane there in Shinar is this. Their goal was their glory. That's what's happening. Their goal was their glory. And, and that is the, the posture, the disposition of every heart that is swelling with pride. A heart that is swelling with pride is looking out at the world and all they can see is themselves. When pride is swelling in our heart, our goal is always our glory. This is what pride sounds like. Right? It is all about me. Or in this text, let us make a name for ourselves. Th that, that's, that, that's the vocabulary of pride. Let us make a name for ourselves. Their ambition was not upward toward God. It was inward toward themselves. The problem on the plain there in Shinar was that the people had a wrong glory goal. Their goal was for their glory. Now, let's take a moment to think about that word glory. We've actually uh, talked about this a little bit over the last few weeks. Uh, that, that word means heavy. It, it means to be weighty. So to glorify something means that you are giving it significance in your life. Weight in your life. That it has a heaviness in your life. That, that's, when you're glorifying something, that's the place that you're giving it. This is how you glorify it. To glorify anything means that you prize it as most precious. 
Whatever you're doing that with in your life, that is what you're glorifying. That's what you're giving weight to. That's what you're giving significance to. Whatever you prize as most precious. Now, the scriptures are just so clear on this. God has made you for a reason. And I'm so glad the Bible just says what it is. Like when you wake up on a Monday and you're wondering, why am I living this week? What is the purpose of this day? My life doesn't feel like it has a lot of purpose right now. What, what is the purpose of this day, this week, this month, this year? What, what is the reason for my life? The Bible is so clear that you were made for God. That's why you were made. To glorify God. This is Isaiah 43.7. God says, these people who I created for my glory. That's why you exist. To glorify God. And ironically, the more we are bending our life in that direction, our life is made for God to glorify God, the, the more glad our hearts will be. That you were made for God. I, I love the way Jimmy said it here recently. He said, um, you were not made to be seen, but to see, to, to help others see. You were made so that your life and lips would show that God is most prized in your life. He is the precious one, the weighty one. The most significant one in your life. You were made for that. You come most alive as a human being when you're doing that. You were made for God. You, you were made to be able to say with Isaiah in Isaiah 26 verse 8 when he says, God, it's your name and your renown. That's the desire of my heart. You were made to be able to say that. Now, that's the problem on the plain in Shinar. Their goal was their glory. The cry of their heart was not your name and your renown, O oh God, is the desire of our heart. No, that's not what theirs was. Their cry was my name, our name, our renown. That's the desire of our heart. That's the problem in this text. Pride had blinded them to the beauty of God. And they were so blind to God that the only thing that they could see was themselves. My name, my renown. God, we're going to make a name for ourselves. Now, let's just pause for a moment here and recognize that this passage isn't showing us just their problem. It isn't meant for us to look at and say, well, man, it's it, terrible to be them right? It's not what it's there for. It's not meant to, to just show us their problem. It is also showing us our problem. This is not just what they did. It's what we do. Sin has so bent the human heart that we come out of the womb spring-loaded to seek glory for ourselves, not God. This is part of what it means to be human, east of Eden. You are spring-loaded to, to move in that direction, to jump in that direction for your goal to be your glory. Your heart is spring-loaded for that. Our goal being our glory is not just how some people in some places live, like, you know, those people back in Genesis 11. That's not how the scriptures talk about this. No, it says that this is how every person in every place lives. 
We come out of the womb wanting to be seen, not see. We come out of the womb wanting to be seen, not help other people see the wonder and the majesty and the beauty of God. This is how we all come out of the womb. We all come out of the womb speaking Genesis 11 language natively. Let us make a name for ourselves. It's called human pride. I am the one to be praised. I am the one to be prized. I am what is most precious in this world. It is all about me. Everyone else, God included, you're going to orbit around me. I'm the point. I'm the center. God, get out of the way because I'm here. This is not just their problem. It's our problem. Now, if this is the human problem, um, we would all probably look at that and say, well, we want to see this clearly then. Like, we don't want to be blind to the human problem, right? We don't want to be blind to a problem that is uh, in every human heart. We want to see these things with clarity. And I'm thankful that this passage gives us some insight to help us see this problem with clarity. Uh, let me give you a few of the insights that when I look at this text, I'm thankful that it's giving. Uh, here's one insight. This text helps us see that God sees our goals. That God sees our goals, our glory goals. God sees these things. This text is showing us that God sees through our work to our why. God sees through what we do to the desire that lies behind what we do. And this passage is showing us that God cares about what he sees, the, the why, the desire, that why behind the work, down under the work that you do in your life, the things that you're doing. God sees that why, what, what our goals are, what our desires are, and it matters to him. This text is showing us that motives matter. They matter greatly to God. So this passage gives us an occasion to slow down. Have you ever asked yourself the question, why do I do what I do? What is motivating me? What is propelling me? What is in me that's pushing me to do this thing and that thing? What is that? And friends, that is such an important question. This text is showing us that it's not what you appear to be that matters. It's not what other people see you doing, the, the mask that you've built, the way you present yourself and other people have bought into. It's not, that does not matter. What you appear to be has no value. But what has ultimate value is what you actually are. And God sees down into what you actually are, your motives, why you do what you do, the why behind your work, the desire behind your doing. And have you ever just stopped to ask yourself questions about that? Why am I doing these things? What is the why behind my, my doing and my work? What is the goal, right? Is it God's glory? Is it my glory? Now, because our hearts are bent by sin, our motives are never going to be perfect. But here's the first step in progress with our motives. The first step in progress is just an awareness. These things are in me. They, they exist in me. 
This is why it's so important to sit down with the Lord and trusted friends asking these types of questions. God, what is happening inside of me? Why did I respond like that to that person? Why did anger just rush upon me in that moment? Why is it that in this context I feel so insecure? It's just asking those sorts of questions about our interior world. And when's the last time you've slowed down just to, to notice those things? To be aware of those things? Like, listen, these are things that God sees. And they matter to the Lord. So, so this passage is just inviting us into a sort of way of living where they matter to us. And I, I want to just mention one tool that I think is so helpful in doing some of this work. Uh, we use it with our staff all the time. It's called the Prayer of Examine. And uh, it's, it's an old prayer that has been used and kind of a way of praying that has been used for years and years and years. And uh, it starts just by trying to connect you to the Lord, just focusing on the presence of God in your life, you being present with God right now in this moment. Uh, and and then it moves on. The second sort of category is gratitude, just helping you remember and rehash and recall the many graces of God in your life. And then it moves to what it calls review. And this is a chance for you to look back over your last day, over your last week, over your last month, whatever the time frame would be. And listen, you can do this in 10 minutes or 30 minutes, but it's just a chance for you to look back and ask questions about what you saw there. To, to almost look at your life like an outside observer, like, why am I responding like that? What is happening in me in that moment to produce that in me? What is going on in, in this moment in my life? It's just a chance for you to think about those things in your life. And then the fourth thing it moves you into is what it calls respond. So it's just in light of what you've just seen, what would be ways that you could respond to the grace of God in your life? So I, I would just commend that to you. We'll send that out to everyone this week, but I would just commend that to you as a, as a really helpful tool as you're trying to become more aware of your interior world. Because this passage is showing us that God sees our goal. He sees what's happening down here. That why behind all of the work in our life. And it matters to God. Motives matter. Here's the second insight we see from this text. That the wrong goal, right? So the wrong glory goal God, it's about me, not about you. My goal is my glory. The, the wrong goal can produce wrong behavior. Now, I doubt that is shocking to anyone here, right? Uh, the wrong goal can produce the wrong behavior. Now, in this text, tower building probably fits that, that category of ungodliness or the wrong behavior. Uh, that tower was not just like, I'm building the Eiffel Tower because I want a great, beautiful work of art. Uh, commentators virtually all agree that that tower was a temple where they would, in some ways, meet with their false gods. And anytime we're on our face before false gods, it's like sort of the Bible's definition of ungodliness or bad behavior, right? So it's an example of how the wrong goal is going to lead us and will produce over time wrong behavior. And that is true in our lives. When we have the wrong glory goal, wrong behavior is never far away, right? Maybe we could say it this way. The more you are living in such a way where you believe that you're the point, everything's about you. God, everyone else should be orbiting around you. The more we live that way, the more we will be enslaved to a thousand sins. It's impossible 
to live well for the Lord when it's all about you and not about him. Right? We'll be enslaved to a million sins. We will use and abuse people. Impatience will flare. Anger will flare. Self-pity will flare. Greed, lust. When our goal is our glory, all of those things are going to be knocking on our door. So the wrong goal can produce wrong behavior. Now, here's the third insight that the Bible gives us about this human problem, right? Human pride. Our goal being our glory. Uh, the, the scriptures show us that the wrong goal can also produce right behavior. Now, that is what's shocking. That when we have the wrong goals, it can produce right living. Now, this was the Pharisees in the New Testament. They were the religious leaders of the day, and they were the best behaviors. Like if you were alive in the first century and you were just looking around at all the people that made up, you know, your world, you would have been looking at the Pharisees as the good guys. These are the clean people. These are the people who have their life together. They're the moral people. They're the law-abiding people. They are the good guys. They are living well. They are the best behaviors. And the New Testament shows us they behave the best, not in spite of their goal being their glory. That's not the reason. They behave the best because their goal was their glory. That, that's why they were behaving so well. They had the wrong goal and it was producing all sorts of right living. Now, isn't that sobering to consider? That when our goal is our glory, it can produce good behavior, moral living, a right way of living. It, it can produce that. It, it can motivate us to accomplish great things, to do great things. Like in this text, we're going to build a city. We're going to build a tower. It can, it can produce that in us. It, it can produce in us a willingness to work hard at school, to get good grades, do the right things at school. It, it can produce that. It, it can even lead us to things like marriage and, and even lead us to cultivating a good marriage and it be all about us, our goal being our glory. Uh, when our goal is our glory, it can even lead us to, to have kids and to become good parents. It can lead us to work and to be the hardest worker at work, the most diligent, the most accomplished, like making the sales, doing the things. It can lead us to that. And it can even lead us, the wrong goal, right? The, the, my, my glory, that, that's my goal, that, that heart, that, that human pride, that can even lead us into ministry, preaching, disciple-making, evangelizing, serving, getting the gospel to an unreached people group. It can even lead us to that. Now that is pretty shocking, isn't it? When I was 25, um, I was a few years into vocational ministry and I had one of the most important moments of my life. Um, I've shared this a couple of times with our church family, but it, it was just a huge moment for me. Uh, our staff was working through a book called Strength Finders and uh, just trying to help everyone kind of get a sense of like where some of their strengths are, all that good stuff. And we took a strength finders test and it spits back to you five of your sort of top strengths. And here was my top strength. Took the test. Here's number one, competition. And here's the description of competition, okay? 
Oh, and by the way, uh, this, uh, we got the test back, we got our strengths, we all get our whole staff, there's 20 or 30 of us in a room, and whatever our top strength is, uh, we're going to read this in that room, just trying to identify, this is, this is what it feels like, this is what it looks like for this to be your, like, top strengths. So in that room, and this is the paragraph we read. Here's you, Rodney, competition. Competition is rooted in comparison. When you look at the world, you are instinctively aware of other people's performance. Their performance is the ultimate yardstick. No matter how hard you try, no matter how worthy your intentions, if you reached your goal but did not outperform your peers, the achievement feels hollow. Like all competitors, you need other people. You need to compare. And if you can compare, you can compete. And if you can compete, you can win. And when you win, there is just no feeling like it. You like measurements because it facilitates comparisons. You like other competitors because they invigorate you. You like contests because they produce a winner. You particularly like contests where you know you have the inside track to be the winner. Because who likes to be a loser, right? So, so yes, if you know you're going to win, it's even better. And although you are gracious to your fellow competitors, you don't compete for the fun of competing. You compete to win. Now, when that was read, in that room, read that description, uh, here were my first two thoughts. Thought number one, I hate that guy. <laughs> Who likes that guy? Right? I mean, that guy is not a good guy. That, that's a rough guy right there. That was my first thought. And here's the second thought. I am totally that guy. I am totally that man. And here's why that moment was so important for me. Like, I, I look back with tears thinking about that because it was so vital to the rest of my life. It was the moment God helped me see that so much of my academic achievements, so much of my athletic achievements, and now so much of my ministry achievements, accomplishments, were all rooted in the wrong glory goals. That my goal was my glory and it was even leading to ministry accomplishments and God could see it. That, that was the moment where God gave me an awareness of all of those things. Rodney, now you can see what I have been, God's saying, I have been seeing for a long time. Isn't that sobering? That, that the wrong glory goals can even produce right, good things in our life. But God sees it. And when the wrong why is producing right actions, it's still wrong to God. It does not please God. So, look at Genesis 11 here. Can you see yourself in Genesis 11? Can you see in your heart a desire to make a name for yourself? My goal, my glory. Can you see that in you? Can you see yourself in the text in Genesis 11? Now, if you can't see yourself in the story of Genesis 11, if you can't see that, it's not because you're not there. It's just because you're blind to it. 
You are still waiting on the moment for the Lord to open up your sight so that you can see these things in you. This text is in the scriptures for us, not just to show us what they did, but to show us what we are doing, what you do and what I do. My goal, my glory, can you find that heart in you? And that part of your heart, can you see that? And how that's seeping its way into parts of your life. Here's the first picture, it's human pride. And then you get to the second half of the text, and we're almost finished here, but it's a picture of God's grace. That's the second picture, a picture of God's grace. So starting in verse 5, here's what we read. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Now verse 5 is the central verse in the text. It's the middle verse. It's the, the central verse in this text. And here's what we have in verse 5. Uh, the people on the plain in Shinar start building. And they're building this glory-getting temple. And in the middle of them building, God steps in. And there is a dusting of mockery in verse 5. Uh, they're building their tower up to the heavens. But what does God have to do to see it? He, he has to come down to see it. Now, obviously, God doesn't have to go anywhere to see anything. Uh, but there is a dusting of mockery in this text. You're saying, hey, I know you think you're building up, but I'm having to stoop way low to come down to see this. It would be akin to an ant looking at you and saying, can you believe this mound that I've built? It is like as tall as you. And then you being like, okay, how do I get down here to show you this? No, it's, it's that sort of mockery. It's got that dusting of sarcasm in here. And then you get to verse 6. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Now you need to be careful in how you read verse 6. The Bible here is not presenting a small, insecure God. The Bible's not presenting a God that is like wondering, did I just find the rival that will really upend everything for my plans? Is that what I, no, that's not what the Bible is presenting here. This is not a picture of a small, insecure God, but of a wise God. He knows the trajectory. He knows when we have the wrong glory goals, when, when our goal is our glory, he knows that there is about to be a steep descent into darkness and depravity. He knows what's coming for them. He knows what lies behind these sort of wrong glory goals. So God says in verse 7, Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. So what does this text want us to see here? Here's the way I would describe it. When our goal is our glory, God will graciously frustrate our goals. That's what this text wants you to see. When your goal is your glory, God will graciously frustrate your goals. 
Uh, in a lot of ways, this text puts Isaiah 42.8 in story form. Uh, Isaiah 42.8 is God saying, I am the Lord. That's my name. My glory I will give to no other. Uh, God is not interested in negotiating glory with us, right? He doesn't come to us and say, okay, I know you want some, so how about you take half and I'll take half? And then we bargain a little bit and he said, okay, we'll do a 60-40 split on this thing. That God didn't operate that way. That's not the way God interacts with people, right? He says, no, I am not giving any of my glory away. It is all my glory. You were made for me to glorify me and your gladness is actually dependent upon that. So I'm not going to give you any glory. It's an act of love to you. I cannot do that. Right? This is what this text is showing us. When our goal is our glory, God will graciously frustrate our goals. And you see this happen throughout the Bible. You just see it on repeat throughout the Bible. Um, take King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4 as a for instance. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, he is on his roof of his palace, ironically overlooking Babylon, which is very likely the exact same city we're talking about here. Babel became Babylon, right? So he's looking out over this city. He's looking out over this amazing kingdom, this, this amazing palace that he has. He's looking out over all of that and his heart swells with pride. And this is what he says in verse 30 of Daniel 4. He says, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Uh, the king of Babylon sure sounds a lot like the people of, of Babel, right? I mean, it, it, he is essentially saying, I'm going to make a name for myself and this is how I have done it R right here. But when our goal is our glory, God will graciously frustrate our goals. God brought a severe mercy to King Nebuchadnezzar. God, in an act of grace, drove King Nebuchadnezzar out of his palace, took all of his power away, took his people away, even took his sanity away. This guy lost his mind. He is eating with the animals grass. I mean, th this guy has completely lost it all. But when God frustrates our glory goals, it is always a gift. Behind the bitter taste is grace. After God's frustrating grace, the king comes back to his senses, and this is the first thing he says. Daniel chapter 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the, mo uh, the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? And then he goes on to say this in verse 37, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, Praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And listen to this last phrase. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. 
The frustrating grace of God was a gift. Behind the bitter taste was grace. Uh, do you remember the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15? It's a story that Jesus tells. And the younger son called the prodigal, uh, he came up to the father. And this is a picture of us and God. We are the son. God is the father. He comes up to his father and he says that the most hurtful, dishonoring thing that a son could say to his father, uh, can you just give me my share of the inheritance? It's the equivalence of uh, saying, uh, dad, I wish you were dead. This is what happens when our goal becomes our glory. Everyone else better get into the orbit around us or else. So dad, why don't you go ahead and die so I can get the things I want here? That's what's happening in this story. And the father gives him the very things he wants. He gives him his share of the inheritance. But when our goal is our glory, God will graciously frustrate our goals. The, the young son takes all of that money out into the far country. He blows it all in no time. And he, just like King Nebuchadnezzar, is down with the animals. A severe mercy. He is feeding pigs just wishing he could have a little bit of that food. But behind the bitter taste was grace. And in that pig pen, with God's grace frustrating his goals, he came to his senses. His proud heart was humbled. He repented of his wrong glory goals and he came back home to God. It's an amazing story. And friends, we get to consider stories like this, Genesis 11. Uh, stories like King Nebuchadnezzar's, stories like uh, the prodigal son. Uh, we get to consider these stories by looking at them through the story, like the, the story of Jesus. And because we know that in the life, death, and resurrect, re resurrection of Jesus, that, that, that God the Father poured out every last drop of wrath that he has for, for your sin and mine. Right? He poured out every last drop of wrath, not onto us, but onto the person of Jesus. We know because of that, that when God's frustrating grace comes into our life, it's not to kill us, but to heal us. James tells us that God opposes the proud. But when that frustrating grace, that opposition comes into our life, we know it's not because God hates his kids, we know that it's the only way that God can help his kids. We know that behind that bitter taste, right, that frustrating grace, we know that behind that taste, there is grace there from God. There is help there from God. King Nebuchadnezzar and the prodigal son show us that frustrating Grace, that, that frustration that it brings does not have to have the last word. Uh, but that frustrating grace is meant to form us. It's meant to form your heart and my heart. It's meant to, to rip out of our heart the wrong glory goals and to put into our heart the right glory goal. It's meant to form our hearts so that we can say with Isaiah, God, it is your name. Not mine, but God, it's your name. It is your renown that is the desire of our heart. That's what the frustrating grace is meant to produce. Will you bow with me there where you are? And I want to give you a moment to, 
Just open your heart before the Lord. Where do you see yourself in this story? We're in it. Just a matter of where are we in it? today you are receiving the frustrating grace of God. And if so, this text is a reminder that that frustrating grace is a gift. Behind the bitter taste is grace. That frustrating grace has been sent to form our hearts. rip out of us those wrong glory goals, to put in our heart a desire for God's glory, his name, his renown. And friends, wherever we see those wrong glory goals today, my goal is my glory. This is a chance for us to turn from those wrong goals, to repent of those wrong goals, and to come back home to the Lord. That's what today is for us.